His name is Mike Don. They would never Simon Peter being one of the disciples. They would never say this guy who kept getting it wrong and kept getting it wrong and kept wrong. They would never in a million years say this is the guy that Jesus is going to build the church on. They'd never do that. They're like, no, he's a really bad spokesperson for this Bible thing because Jesus changes everything, but he doesn't seem to be changing Peter very quickly. Can I get an amen? Here's what I need you all to remember right off the top is Jesus changes some of us suddenly and dramatically and instantly, and Jesus changes other of us very slowly and gradually because I am way less like a Saul becoming Paul, and I'm way more like a Peter stumbling and stumbling. But the thing I want you to have in your head is Peter kept falling forward. So if I could encourage any of you guys as you go into high school and you get out of high school, whatever, when you fall, you just keep falling forward. Right on. Is this Mike going to keep doing that? Chick, chick. What do you think? Hello. Hello, my son. Can you still hear me? Chick. 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 Try this one. Yeah. The microphone can't handle what I'm spitting at y'all right now. That's what's happening. Um. Because let me, let me tell you just real quick, I was, I was a middle child of five kids growing up, and just to give you an idea of what kind of rapscallion I was, my mom had me at Disney World, any of y'all been to Disney World? Had me at Disney World when I was three years old, she had me on a leash, and my mom, she's right there in the hat, she can attest to this, so she said, right mom, that you're looking down at the leash and you see a kid walk by that looks just like me, and then she goes back to the end of the leash and realized I had taken the leash off and put it on another child. All right? So I'm not so dumb just to break free the leash. I'm like, I got to put someone else on the thing. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I got sent to the principal's office 42 times. 42 times, y'all. But here's, here's something interesting. In eighth grade, I didn't go one time. And it's because my middle school principal did for me what Jesus did for Simon Peter the very first time they met. All right, so let's read this account real quick, and then I'll tell you what my middle school principal did for me. Open up. If you got, do you guys have Bibles? You got a phone. If you got a phone, you got a Bible. Don't even play. I'm, I'm looking at the Bible on my phone, y'all. Boop. So go to John chapter 1, if you can. And I can. Y'all, it is so hot in this tent. Man, I'm going to, like, save all this sweat in a cup and drink it later. It's going to be so good. <laughs> you guys are like, that's unnecessarily disgusting. Um, all right, check this out. John chapter 1, verse 35. What, what translation should I read this in? NIV? Would that be helpful? All right. Here's a, here's, can I just say this as an aside? Read the Bible in as many translations as you can because... I'll be honest, and maybe guys that work at your church won't be honest with you about this, but there's a lot of words that translators come upon that they don't actually know the definition to. So there's actually parts of the Bible that you're never going to find people who agree because everyone's guessing on what it actually says. And, and something else I just want to add, and Peter is a testament to this, the Bible is not God. You can actually worship the Bible in an unhealthy way. 
Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. He says, you worship the scripture because you think in them you have eternal life. But those scriptures are just those that point to me and speak of me. And you never came to me that I could give you life. So I want you to know that the Bible is not God. The Bible points to the reality. It points to the mystery. Amen? And that kind of, like, all of a sudden, you don't have to freak out. If it's like, what? Somebody says that passage isn't true or it wasn't translated correctly. Guess what? You don't freak out because you're like, yeah, because it's all about Jesus anyway. Right? So check this out. John chapter 1, verse 35. That was an aside. That was a freebie. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Like, whoa. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you, where are you staying? Where, where are you going? Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. I'm going to stop there. I really want to clear this up because I grew up in the church, and nobody explained this to me. Everyone told me about the disciples and made me feel bad for not dropping everything and following Jesus. What you got to understand, in this culture, following a rabbi was like making it in the NBA. Like every single boy in Jewish culture was training to become a rabbi. So anytime you see Jesus interact with a disciple that's doing something else than being a rabbi, that means somewhere along rabbi training school, they didn't make the cut and they got kicked out. So when you see fishermen dropping their nets and going after Jesus, it's because every Jewish boy dreamt of becoming a rabbi. So when Jesus comes along and they're like, hey, where are you staying? That's them saying, hey, can I get back in on the program? I got cut, but could I get back into rabbi school? And when he's like, yeah, come. They're like, yes, we're back in the big show. So don't like, over-spiritualized these disciples like they dropped everything and they followed Jesus. Of course they did. That was like the coolest thing you could be in that culture. So it wasn't necessarily because their motives were pure. They just wanted in on the power. And that's what I'm going to get at with Peter. I'm going to show you how he encounters Jesus' power, but it's a long time before he actually encounters his love. You'll see what I mean. Okay, check this out. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Now, again, you're not hearing what they were saying. The Messiah was the dude who was going to usher in Israel's dominance on the international scene. The Messiah was the guy that was going to set them free from Roman occupation. So Andrew is not coming to his brother going, hey, I found this Savior and Lord who we can worship. He said, I found the most powerful guy, and we get to be on the most powerful team. Okay? So, of course, Peter's like, all right. Let's, or Simon at the time. And this is what's awesome. Jesus looked at him, and he goes, you're Simon, son of John, prophesying. It's like, how would you know that? You will be called Cephas, which is better translated Peter. Peter means the rock. Now, how many of y'all read about Peter? You read about Peter, right? What, what does Peter go on to do? He goes on to jump out of boat, sink. He goes on to cut off a dude's ear, right? He goes on to deny Jesus point blank. 
And how does Jesus get off calling him the rock? He doesn't deserve that at all. So I'm in seventh grade. At this point, I've been sent to the principal's office probably like 35 times. And do you guys, do you guys have vending machines in your school? Okay. You don't. You don't have a vending machine? Have you ever seen a vending machine? Okay, great. You looked at me. You're like, what's wrong with this guy? All right. You're homeschooled. Do you have a vending machine at your house? It's called my fridge. That's awesome. Well, I was treating the vending machine like my fridge. Vending machines used to not have a good little guard at the bottom. So you used to be able to put your little arm in there and monkey it up and steal candy from the bottom rung, right? So I'm in the middle of stealing the candy from the bottom rung, and we had a little vending machine room at my school. And my middle school principal, he walks in, and like, boom. And I'm down, like, ah! And he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. I'm like, what's about to go down? I'm like, should I run? If I do, I'm going to rip my arm off. It's like, so I just own it. I'm like, yes, I'm stealing. And he looks back at me, and he goes, hmm. So, Michael, you're telling me your integrity is worth 50 cents. I always thought it was worth more than that. And he walked out. And there's this quote, I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, if you treat a man as he is, he'll remain that man. But if you treat a man as a better man, as the man he could be, as the man he should be, he'll become that better man. So here you got Jesus looking at Peter, knowing all the ways Peter's going to fail him. And what's he do? He says, I'm going to give you a new name. And that's what my middle school principal did for me. He said, every other teacher calls you a rapscallion. Every other teacher calls you a delinquent. Every other teacher calls you a discipline problem. But God, I'm going to look at you. I'm going to see past those actions. I'm going to see your heart, and I'm going to call you into who you could be. Which only makes sense because if you remember, do you guys, do you know the story of Jesus and John the Baptist? The it, Chronologically, it transpires right before this, right? John the Baptist, he's baptizing people. Jesus shows up, and he goes, dude, I'm not worthy to tie your sandals, man. And Jesus says, baptize me. So he baptizes him and says, a voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Notice again the timeline. Jesus, at that point, has not done anything for God. Listen to me carefully. Jesus hasn't done one miracle he hasn't healed one person. And the voice from heaven comes down and says, I love you. And this is important for us because some of y'all are going to leave creation and you're going to try to go earn the very validation that Jesus wants to give you before you live for him. In other words, the way I like to say it, and you can write this down, but it doesn't look like many of you guys are writing stuff down. That's right, so just try to remember this. Don't live for God. You're like, this is a strange message that we came in here today to hear. Don't live for God until you learn how to live because of God. Like, don't go trying to earn God's love. You have to live out of it, which is so backwards in our culture, right? Like, we don't praise Steph Curry unless he hits a bunch of threes. His worth is dependent upon his production. His title is is dependent upon his performance. And here with Peter, Jesus does exactly the opposite. He says, I'm going to give you a new name, 
before you try to do anything for me. But Peter still wasn't getting it. Let's, let's read one more passage, okay? Check this out. Luke chapter 5. I'm doing this because your little, like, group discussion questions, this is where it goes. So I'm going to, like, hit those briefly, too, at the end, just to make sure you all understand what I'm trying to tell you. Yo, I'm sweating so much, guys. This is amazing. And, hey, by the way, if at any point while I'm talking, you're like, I don't agree with that, raise your hand. I'll call on you. You disagree with me all day. I love it. Because here's another little aside. We're Western thinkers. We've inherited the way we do things from the Greek. Uh, And the Greeks, what they did was around the same time as Jesus, they'd have a philosopher stand in front of a crowd, and he would give his philosophy. And then based on whether or not the people liked his philosophy, they would take up an offering at the end of the speech, and then he'd take the money home. Kind of sounds like church. Uh, converse that or like put that up against, juxtapose that with the way Jesus did things. And you know how the disciples always got a bad rap because they're always asking questions like they're idiots? You ever heard a youth pastor or a pastor say that? The disciples, they didn't understand anything. Jesus would teach them and they'd go, what do you mean, Jesus? That's because the way rabbis and their students were instructed to learn was the only way rabbis taught was through questioning, and the only way their students were allowed to respond was with another question. So the disciples in the New Testament, they're not stupid. They're just doing what they're supposed to do, which you can learn a lot more about what someone understands by the questions they ask than the truths they spout. Just going to throw that out there. All right, Luke chapter 5. I kind of have ADD, so I'm going to go on rants. Squirrel. Uh, All right, Luke chapter 5. Check this out. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gisenaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. Okay, Simon Peter, got a boat. Jesus, get my boat. I'm a big deal. Look at me. And asked him to put put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, what kind of accent should Jesus have? Let's make him Scottish today. Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. (laughs) Donkey. Okay. All right. Listen, Jesus, we're going to make waffles in the morning. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Simon answered, (laughs) who doesn't love some Shrek, right? Come on. What you think, Gingy? Okay. Uh, Okay. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will lay down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people or for men. I'm just going to lay that story out there. We're going to come back to it. I want you to go ahead. I'm going to read one more story, which is in John chapter 21. And I'll hit these questions and we'll be done. You can, like, go jump in a pool or something. Or the lake. You can jump in the lake. You're going to get leeches, but you could jump in there. It's cool. I know they baptize people in that lake at the end of the week, but 
You've been warned. Okay. Um, John chapter 21. So this is after Jesus has risen. He's died on the cross. He's risen again. He's been appearing to the disciples here and there. He's doing his thing. He's acting like a ghost, but he's tangible. He's eating fish in front of him. Thomas has had an interaction with him. And it says this. So they're out at the Sea of Galilee, blah, 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 blah. And then Simon says, I'm going to go fish. And I've heard pastors talk about this. They go, see, after Jesus died, Simon just goes back to what he knows. He's backsliding. He's going back. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think the guy just wants to clear his head, maybe. just wants to go fish. Maybe he's hungry. Who knows? But he goes out to fish. We actually don't know why Peter went out to fish. But he goes out to fish, and they say, we'll go with you. So they went out, got in the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Remember the story I just told you, right? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, your, f- your friends, haven't you got any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, P.S., do you guys know who the disciple Jesus loved was? John. Okay, let me ask this question. How many of you think John the disciple was Jesus' best friend? Have you been taught that? Anybody? Y'all just staring at me like I got lobsters crawling out of my ears. I, I was taught that growing up. I remember like, have you guys even seen a flannel board, like a felt board? Do you know what those things are? It's like this like mysterious board, this mysterious substance you could put paper mache cut out people on it and make them do stuff. And I remember being in Sunday school and my teacher going, here's Thomas. Thomas doubted. And here's Peter. Peter denied Jesus. And here's John. <gasps> John. John was Jesus' favorite. And I remember at like nine years old, I want to be Jesus' favorite. She goes, mm-mm. John. She goes, John was the disciple that Jesus loved. I said, I want to be the disciple Jesus loved. She goes, mm-mm, John. And I remember it really irked me because my, my Sunday school teacher told me Jesus had a best friend. And I'm looking at other places in the Bible that says Jesus shows no favoritism. God shows there's no favorites with God. I go, so how do you reconcile these things? Did you know that the only place where John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved is in the book that he wrote? Which, hold up. Again, this goes back to the name thing that you see with Jesus and the Father and you see with Jesus and Peter. That's actually the most humble thing he could say. Because he was actually the most accomplished disciple. And if he was identifying himself the way we do, the way we do on our Instagram, we go, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you what I've done. Varsity basketball player. Top cheerleader straight A honor roll. We identify ourselves by our accomplishments. And John could have done that. He could have said, I'm the stinking disciple who laid my head on Jesus' chest. I'm the disciple who got custody of Jesus' mother. I'm the only disciple who stood at the cross when all the other disciples punked out and ran away like little sissies. But he doesn't. His whole identity was, I'm loved by God. And that's my Kind of one of the questions I want to leave you with is when you look in the mirror, can you say that about yourself? Or do you just see mistake or do you just see regret? 
Or does God's love for you oscillate depending on how good you've been? Or how much you're doing for him? Because we got a song about that. It says, God doesn't need me. Somehow he wants me. And he wants me even when I'm not being very productive. Doesn't change how much he wants me and loves me. I'll get to that. I'm almost done. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard it, he said, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumps in the water. He's just, you know, I love Peter. He's just, just bumbling all the time. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Then Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Another reason I know that the Bible is probably true is that fiction writing hadn't been invented yet. You're like, what does that even mean? If you read Greek tragedies, putting numbers randomly, like specific facts about things, writers didn't do that back then. So unless these disciples are creating linguistic devices that no one has ever imagined, untrained fishermen, or maybe they're just telling you what happened. Does that make sense? That's another thing. But just an aside, too, 153, a lot of scholars, I've read this, that they believe that that's the number of known nations in the world at the time, was there was 153 nationalities. So the 153 fish represents that Jesus wanted to show his love to every single nation that exists. Anyway, so that's interesting. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you did not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. How about that retort? So, you know, the last interaction they had, Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus three times. And here three times you got Jesus looking at Peter going, do you love me? And just Peter's going, ugh, 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 ugh. And then on top of it, he's already feeling terrible, right? And then Jesus goes, oh, by the way, you're going to follow me and you're going to get killed. Come on. If he didn't feel bad enough, right? Check this out. So, so understandably, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? John's like, remember me. He is kind of flaunting there a little bit. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, 
Lord, what about, what about him? I mean, you just told me I'm going to die if I follow you. What about John? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So I want to hit a couple things, and then you can go, or you can keep sweating, whatever it is. But again, I love the, on- the raw, stinging honesty of this text, okay? I mean... The very first time Jesus talks to Peter, he gives him a new name. He prophesies over him, says, I'm going to give you a name you don't deserve. And the very last time he talks to him, he says, you're going to die. How on earth did this Peter, who a couple days before is denying Jesus, how on earth is he transformed to like later joyfully go to his own death in the name of Jesus. I'd say it like this. There's a lot of people, and I said this at the beginning, who experienced Jesus, Saul becoming Paul. You were going one way, and it's like, Jesus is amazing, and then you're evangelizing every kid on your campus, and you got like a Bible under your arm, and you're like, you're just all about it, right? Peter has a much more similar story to me, where I experienced him as Savior, Because when I was five, they said, Jesus will take your spanking for you. I said, sign me up. I get spanked all the time. This is great. I need a savior. Absolutely. But it wasn't until I was like 17 or 18 until he actually started to become my Lord. When it became clear that his commands to me were actually good. You know, until then, let's be honest. Most of y'all probably feel like the things your youth pastor tells you that Jesus said, like, they're just trying to keep me from having a good time. This whole Jesus thing, it's just to get me obey. And it wasn't until I was 18 until I started going, oh, I started watching my friends just doing whatever they want and just listening to their own impulses and their own passions. And I started seeing how that played out. And I went, oh, man, Jesus' commands are actually good. But that's still not enough. When I got to college, something happened to me. I remember I was sitting up my freshman year dorm room, and I heard singing. And you guys did a great job. Can we give it up for the worship team doing some worship? I heard singing out my freshman dorm room, and I had a little balcony. And I ran over the balcony, and I looked down, and I went, there's a bunch of good-looking girls down there singing. I'm going to go down there. And I grabbed my guitar because I was just learning how to play guitar, and I went down with the, st- the only motivation was to impress these girls, only thing I was worried about. But you know what happened? I get down there, nobody's looking at me. I'm like, what is wrong with these girls? Why isn't anyone paying attention to me? And they were all like this. And they were paying attention to this God I couldn't even see. I was just so annoyed, so frustrated. Because I'd experienced him as Savior. I was starting to experience him as Lord, but I still had never experienced God as treasure. And I look at Peter's life, and honestly, that ending, I don't even really know when when Peter experienced Jesus' treasure, but I can tell you this guy, this galumphing, 
perpetual mistake-making disciple, somewhere in between this conversation and him willingly stretching out his arms and dying on the on a cross upside down. They said he wasn't even worth, he said, I'm not even worthy to be hung the same way Jesus was. Hang me upside down. That's how, that's how Peter died. Somewhere along the way, he realized that Jesus is the greatest thing and that to hold on to anything else is to hold on to a second best treasure. And the cool thing is, I can say to y'all, until you experience Jesus' treasure, you're never going to really follow him. You're going to keep saying what Peter was saying. What about them? What about them? That's not fair. You're asking me to do that? What about him? How come he get? How come his life is so good? How come they're on the straight A's? How come they made the basketball team? How come they got this? How come they got that? Peter still hasn't had his treasure replaced. Because when your treasure gets replaced, suddenly... It doesn't matter what God calls you to do because you realize all those things he's giving other people, that's not really what will fill you anyway. It's him. And I have a suspicion if you read on in Acts, Peter experiences the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, he's like, whoo, telling people like going after it. And, and don't get me wrong, he still makes some mistakes. You see the, the Apostle Paul correcting Peter as he's leading the church in Jerusalem and saying, you're still teaching the circumcision. What's wrong with you, bro? So you can still even experience the Holy Spirit and still be open to making stupid mistakes. But just to have your attention, should I just shut up? Do you want me to hit these questions real quick? Okay, it's interesting. I like that. I like interesting stuff too. This is why I'm here. Check this out. So in your group discussion, it says, number one, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was responsible for bringing him to Christ. What if Andrew hadn't taken the time to go find Simon Peter and bring him to Jesus. Who was, what's the answer to that question? What would have happened to Peter if Andrew hadn't brought him to Christ? How do you know that? How do you know that? I mean, this is what we do in the Bible. We go, this is how it happened, therefore that's the only way it could have happened. But one of the things we do I think way wrong is we put way too much responsibility on people because Acts 17 says this. It says, God is not served by men's hands if he needed anything, but he gives to us life, breath, and all things. He did not need Andrew to introduce Peter to him. That's the way he chose it to happen, but it's not because that's the only way it could have happened. Because when we start going, I'm responsible to save everybody in my church. Guess what? If you start saving people, you will feel arrogance because you did that. But if you embrace Acts 17, you say God's not served by men's hands as if he needed anything, but he gives to us life, breath, and all things. You realize that Andrew introducing Peter to Jesus was a gift that God gave Andrew. And suddenly now... Andrew's not walking away from that experience, getting all proud and arrogant and looking down on people who aren't sharing their faith. He goes, God, thank you for letting me be a part of that story. Because like I said, I don't even think he was correctly motivated in that experience. He's bringing Peter because he's thinking, they're all thinking that Jesus is leading a political revolution. 
And that's just beautiful that God's going to use your wrong motivations. Like I said, I encountered the Holy Spirit in college with the wrong motivation of just trying to impress girls. And God intervened. How many ever had experience where you go, God intervened on me? There ain't nothing better because it leaves you grateful and not proud. And one thing I know is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's keep going. Y'all like, I'm scared to talk to this guy now. Um, So who is responsible for introducing you to Jesus? I told you about my middle school principal, right? And I thank God. Listen, I'm sure Peter thanked God for Andrew for that conversation. And I thank God for my middle school principal telling me that I had a different name. But I recognize that the change that happened in me, that wasn't because of him. That was because of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so now I can thank people without resting all the credit on their shoulders. Do you know how I know that's true? Because I've been writing songs for 20 years, and people come up to me and they go, thank you for writing that song for me. It changed my life. And I go, listen, y'all, I wrote that for myself. And God took that, and he used it, so you give him all the credit. It's beautiful. All right, what is Simon Peter's reaction to the catch of fish? Why does he react this way? Have you, reached similar, have you reacted similar when you realize exactly who Jesus is and what he wants for you? What's he say? Do you remember that, chat, that story in Luke 5 I read you? He says, woe is me. And so I would actually argue at this point, Simon isn't actually fully changed. He's like experiencing God's power, but he's not really sure of God's love. That's why the first thing he says is, I'm scared of you. And Psalm, if you write any verse down, this would be a really cool verse, I think, for you to memorize this this week. is Psalm uh, 62, verse 11 and 12, or verse 10 and 11. I'm going to look it up. I'm almost done, guys. It's a little elevator music. What'd you say? Hours later? Come on, man. Look it up. Hurry up. Psalm 62, verse 11 and 12 says, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. If you could just get that, that we hear from God once, and when you really hear from God, you don't hear one or the other. You don't hear that God is powerful, and you don't just hear that God is love. There's a great John Foreman song from Switchfoot. He says, your love is strong. And what that means is that if you really hear God, and you really experience God, there's going to be a two-part proclamation. It's one, I am powerful enough to do something about your life, and I'm also loving enough, and I care enough that I will do something. Do you see, if God is only loving, that doesn't really help us. It's like, oh, great, I got a buddy Jesus. But when problems go bad, crap goes bad, life goes wrong, He can't help me. And if we only have a God as strong, it's like, well, that's cool, but how do I know you're going to use that strength for my good? But Peter, eventually, 
I don't know, I can't even really tell you how exactly it looked, but at some point, those two things collided for Peter, and it changed his life. And that's sort of the question. What are some things you can do to ensure that you remain loyal to Jesus? Can I tell you this? You can't. The worst thing that you could do is put all your focus on whether or not you're going to be loyal to God because then it's just you. The best thing you could do is focus all your attention on how Jesus remains loyal to you because that's the reality that will melt your heart. The fact that Jesus, he's seen every stupid thing you've ever done. He's seen every horrible thing that's been done to you. And he still wants you. He still wants you. He's never going to stop wanting you. He's never going to stop wanting you. And you ain't got to do a thing to earn that. You live out a reaction to that. And that will produce loyalty in you because you just won't be able to believe how this God, he says, I will be faithful to you even when you are faithless to me. Let me pray. Father, I sit here and I just want to like grab people's face and like shake them and like put this reality in their heart that they know that you are powerful and that you love them and that you actually care. I know there's 7 billion people, so typically I react the way Peter did and I just go, woe is me. I know you're big, but there's way too many people in the world for you to care about me. And yet you look at us and you give us a new name. And you say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I pray these guys would just try that out this week. Instead of saying, I am a troublemaker, I am this, I am an addict, I am, you know, whatever, that they would say, no, I am a child of God. So they don't have to produce this loyalty in them, but that loyalty would just flow out of a new identity, a new reality, that they would just be who they are. Um, I think, you are you going to play some music? You look, you look ready to do it. Yeah, let's do it. You guys want to sing a song? Is that what you want to do?